Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, we preview Lisa Gavin's upcoming honorary lecturer tour in the Pacific South on seismic azimuthal anisotropy. Lisa and I discuss the three main reasons it's important to be aware of seismic azimuthal anisotropy, why you should account for it in 4D seismic interpretation, who this lecture is for, and what excites her about the future of this topic. Lisa Gavin is a geophysicist with academic and industry experience in the oil and gas industry. She has worked as a geophysicist at Fugro Seismic Imaging, Chevron, and is currently at Woodside Energy in Perth, Australia. She has interest in seismic anisotropy, quantitative interpretation, 4D seismic and rock physics, and holds a PhD in geophysics from the University of Western Australia. This is an informative and insightful interview, so let's get started. So Lisa, could you provide a brief overview of your upcoming honorary lecturer tour? Sure. So I'll be touring the Pacific South region early next year. So unfortunately, I can't give you any firm information on the itinerary at the moment. Um, but hopefully in a couple of weeks, you can check the EPIGI website and there'll be some information up there. So I'll be lecturing on the research I did while I was at the University of Western Australia. And I'm going to take those in attendance through the regional to reservoir scale observations of azimuthal anisotropy across the Northwest Shelf of Australia. So why is it important to be aware of seismic azimuthal anisotropy? So I'd say there are probably three main reasons I think people need to be aware of it. Um, and they're all to do with the velocities changing with the source receiver azimuth or in the compass direction. So first of all, if you don't account for it during seismic imaging, it can degrade your seismic imaging quality. This can happen if you're offshore and you have a stream of feathering and that causes your seismic velocities to change um, as they move from side to side. So if you assume that the Earth's azimuthally isotropic, it means you're going to be using the incorrect velocities. So you can have what appears to be quite noisy data in the end. Whereas if you include the azimuthal anisotropy, the image will be much more sharper and accurate. So the second reason I think it's important for people to be aware of seismic azimuthal anisotropy is when you're looking at amplitude versus offset or AVO responses. So when you have azimuthal anisotropy, your velocities are changing with azimuth and your AVO responses depend on the contrast of velocities and interface. So this means azimuthal anisotropy can impact the gradient of your AVO response. AVO responses are used as direct hydrocarbon indicators and you could look at your data and potentially think you have a steep gradient as a result of hydrocarbons. But in reality, it's just the azimuthal anisotropy impacting the gradient. Likewise, if you're using ABO for inverting properties from seismic and using isotropic equations, you're going to end up with the incorrect rock properties. And the last reason I think people should be aware of seismic azimuthal anisotropy is because it can give us information about the subsurface characteristics. So in an exploration geophysics context, that's all to do with fracture orientation and maximum stress directions. You know, for our listeners, could you provide a, a special sneak peek at one of your observations of azimuthal anisotropy from the northwest shelf of Australia? Yeah, so the northwest shelf of Australia has some really strong amounts of azimuthal anisotropy. So in dipole shear logs, sometimes we're seeing up to 15% differences between fast and slow shear waves. But interestingly, the anisotropy is strongest in the most unconsolidated sands. 
which is something you don't really read much about in the literature. Most of literature tends to focus on azimuthal anisotropy being induced by vertically aligned fractures. I think that's something a little bit different that people may not have come across before. The method you will highlight in your lecture introduces two new concepts about anisotropy. Could you briefly explain these two concepts and why they are important? Sure. So those two concepts are critical anisotropy and the anisotropic depth limit. So this is all to do with unconsolidated sediments experiencing anomalous horizontal stress conditions. So my research shows that azimuthal anisotropy in unconsolidated sediments is stronger in the shallower sections than in the deeper ones. So critical anisotropy is the maximum amount of azimuthal anisotropy expected to be observed at the shallowest sediment burial depth. That's where the combining pressure and sediment compaction are minimal. Whereas the anisotropic depth limit is the maximum depth where the stress-induced azimuthal anisotropy is expected to be observable. This is where the increasing effects of confining pressure, compaction, and cementation makes the sediments really insensitive to any differential horizontal stresses. Why should we account for azimuthal anisotropy and 4D seismic interpretation? So I think azimuthal anisotropy can become quite important if you have your baseline and monitor surveys acquired along different acquisition azimuths. That generally isn't advised. You want to repeat your acquisition azimuth. But if you have no choice, um, if, for instance, you have a production platform that's recently been constructed, you may have different acquisition azimuths. So as I mentioned earlier, azimuthal anisotropy can affect ABO gradients. And ABO gradients are actually really important in 4D seismic interpretation for determining if there's been any pressure or saturation changes. So like I mentioned before, we have different acquisition azimuths, you have different velocities. And then this can cause what we're calling a apparent 4D ABO effect. That's when it's actually no pressure or saturation change. But because of the change in acquisition azimuth, you're going to be seeing changes in the ABO. So that's an apparent ABO effect. Or you may have a contaminated 4D ABO effect where you could have a pressure change that looks like a saturation change, for example. So you're getting your gradients all mixed up because you've acquired a different azimuth. And I guess if you're using this to make decisions like where to put an infill well, you could end up with a completely wrong interpretation, which is potentially quite expensive. What research breakthroughs do you think are needed for seismic azimuthal anisotropy? So I think it would be helpful to have a better understanding of how the Thompson parameters for anisotropy relate to one another and what combinations of them are realistic. So I found if you're reading through the literature and you're trying to do some modeling with sensible parameters, it can be quite difficult, especially the case when well, a lot of the measurements are made are core measurements but then you also extract the parameters from the seismic data. So it can be, get a little bit confusing when you're trying to compare things with different frequency scales and figure out what parameters make sense. So who at first reading this description of your lecture may not realize this lecture is for them? So I think sometimes when I say the phrase stress-induced seismic azimuthal anisotropy, I see people's eyes glaze over and they're just thinking about equations. So I'm not going to dwell on a lot of equations and I'll mostly focus on the impact of azimuthal anisotropy that it has on data um, and just really try to help people understand what to look out for. And I'm going to keep relating the azimuthal anisotropy back to the geology as well. But I think this lecture should have something for everyone in subsurface and that includes geophysicists, geologists, petrophysicists and reservoir engineers. What do you hope will be some of the takeaways for attendees of your lecture? 
So I guess two things come to mind. Uh, the first one is anisotropy doesn't have to be a problem that needs to be corrected for. It can be something that we use as a source of information about the subsurface. Secondly, stress-induced anisotropy isn't all about fractures. It can also occur in unconsolidated sediments. What excites you about the future of this topic? I think four-waveform inversion is a new exciting technology, and we're just starting to learn how to use it as an interpretation tool. But I think going forward, when you have multi-azimuth surveys and you get anisotropic parameters using four-waveform inversion, which are used for imaging, I think these parameters have the potential to tell us a lot about stress fields and therefore the geomechanics of the area imaged. But I think there's potentially quite a lot that could be done there, um, and it could be quite impressive in a few years' time. You're going to be sharing this topic with, with many people next year. What, what do you hope to gain from the tour? So I'm really interested in hearing about people's experiences with azimuthal anisotropy or anisotropy in general. So I guess there's a lot of geoscientists out there who I'm sure have noticed interesting things in their data, but they haven't had the opportunity to share it or write up a paper about it. So I think there could be some quite in- interesting conversations coming out of this. So please finish this sentence. If seismic azimuthal anisotropy reached its full potential, it could... So I guess at the moment, when we get parameters from the subsurface, it's like density, lambda, mu, rho, and they're all, they don't have directions applied to them. Whereas if we get another tropic parameters, then I think that adds an element of direction. So there's a lot more we can get out of it. And it's an additional parameter as well. So if you're not sure what type of geology it is, you have your standard density, et cetera, parameters that you're used to having. And then you also have an isotropic parameters. So it's just a bit of extra information that might help you rule out what geology you're looking at. You know, you volunteer and serve across several geoscientific organizations. You're active in publishing papers. You're an SEG honorary lecturer. You're staying quite busy. You know, what one piece of advice might you offer someone that would like to succeed in your field? I think put yourself out there. And then if people ask you to help out with something, say yes. Even if you don't know or you don't think you have the experience to help, you'll probably find you do offer a different perspective or something that can actually help. And you'll find if you say yes to things and you get involved and you help out, then people start asking you to help out in other things. So it really opens doors and gives you opportunities, I think, when you start saying yes. Very good advice. So if, if you could solve just one mystery as a geoscientist, what would you hope to solve? One mystery? Wow. Um, I guess talking about the Thompson parameters, I think re- relating the parameters at different scales, I think that's something that I've never been able to fully get my head around. As I mentioned earlier, you have measurements made on core samples, then you've got measurements made in seismic. And I think, yeah, I haven't really been able to get my head around how to relate those and potentially that's because there's no simple way to relate them because it's not a simple problem. Well, we're excited for you to meet a bunch of more new geoscientists as you take this on tour. And, and I'm sure you've been preparing very hard. So I'm sure you're probably pretty excited to finally get this out into the world and start sharing it. Yeah, it's really nice to know that people are interested in hearing about what I worked on for quite a long time. 
yeah, this is important work that you're doing. So thank you for taking time to share with us today. And uh, we wish you well on the tour. And, and we'll definitely pop that itinerary up when, and let people know when it is ready to go. Right. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all our episodes and learn how you can listen to this podcast directly on your phone without downloading an app. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.